0: Episode 3 of As My Whimsy Takes
1: Me. I'm Carnis Ellison. And I'm Sharon Shu. Today we're recording our first episode discussing Clouds of Witness, the second Lord Peter Whimsy mystery, and there's actually a brief scene in Whose Body that foreshadows the events in this book.
0: Yes, Gerald, Duke of Denver, complains that it's dashed awkward having a detective in the family. And Peter says cheerfully, I'm being no end useful. You may come to want me yourself, you never know. He does
1: never know. <laughs> I wonder if that was a later edition that Sayers put into Whose Body, since she was already writing the second book before the first book found a publisher. And of course, as we all come to find out in Clouds of Witness, the Duke of Denver does need Peter's help because he's been accused of murdering their sister's fiancé during a hunting vacation in the countryside. And that takes us into the beginning of Clouds of Witness. So, Karius, let's start off just by maybe talking about the beginning of the novel and how this mystery gets set up and kind of how Peter finds out about
0: it. Yeah, Peter has been on vacation. He's taken a little trip to Corsica to get his nerves in order after he had a difficult shell shock flashback during the course of the investigation whose in body and for our listeners who are familiar with Whose Body or who listened to our previous episodes, it will be interesting that he took that trip on the advice of Julian Freak, because while he may not trust Julian Freak and other things, he did trust his medical professionalism. Mm-hmm. So he has been away from England, he has been completely out of contact, he's been unreachable, and he arrives back in Paris, the book describes him wallowing in bed and taking this luxurious bath and coming out from the bathroom, discover that Bunter has packed up all of his suitcases. And he's like, what's going on? We were supposed to stay here. And Bunter says, oh, well, having seen the headlines, I figured that you'd you'd want to go to Riddlesdale. And it's because there's a headline about the Riddlesdale inquest with the Duke of Denver arrested on murder charge.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting that Peter... I mean, it's almost like he goes on this media cleanse while he's away. I mean, it, yeah. the book says that for the last three months he had forsworn letters, newspapers, and telegrams, and you really get that sense that he overtaxed himself so much that it's almost like his brain needs needs a reset.
0: Mm-hmm. The
1: good thing, good old Bunter, is paying attention to the world.
0: <laughs> I do think it's interesting just to go back a little bit to that first opening paragraph. Mm-hmm. It says that he, he meaning Peter, had felt suddenly weary of breakfasting every morning before his view over the Green Park. The very crimes of London were over-sophisticated. whose mm. body turns out to be like a really complex even from some perspectives kind of an overdone murder right
1: we talked last time about the sort of psychological aspects and the sophistication of even the forms that sayers chose right the experimentation but yeah even the details of the mystery themselves are a
0: bit they're very
1: dramatic yes You have to suspend disbelief a little bit.
0: Right. And this is something that I don't want to get into a lot right now because I think it's better suited to when we discuss Bussman's Honeymoon. But Mm -hmm. there were some American detective writers... Specifically, Raymond Chandler, who were <laughs> extremely critical of British mysteries. I know that Raymond Chandler wrote an essay specifically in response to Busman's Honeymoon. Oh,
1: he hated Busman's Honeymoon.
0: Oh, he, oh, he was hated so it nasty. so much. He was so nasty to sayers in that essay. <laughs> but he, yeah, but he wrote this essay which is like, that's not how criminals work. That's not how criminals think. Mm-hmm. That's not what crime is. And that's not what detective work is. Because the kind of American school detective writing that Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and all of those others were ascribing to was very much realism and definitely lacked this conscientiousness about form and puzzles and the rules of the mystery that Sayers and her British contemporaries were following.
1: Right. Which is so interesting because, I mean, you know, so many people point to Edgar Allan Poe as kind of the progenitor of the mystery, right? With Murder in the Rue Morgue and Purloin Letter and so forth.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, like if anyone was conscientious about form and dramatic. Right. It was Edgar Allan Poe, the American writer.
1: <laughs> but maybe maybe we'll talk a little bit about the seeming influences for this book in a little bit.
0: Yeah. But I do think it's interesting that you have this, I would almost say this masculine American school of thought mm. where it's like, oh, crime doesn't make sense. Solving it is this lonely activity where you just kind of have to rely on luck. And it's something that embitters you towards the human race. Mm. Do you feel like
1: it's a, a kind of overemphasis or, or I guess a different emphasis on the physicality of detection versus maybe British novel's having more of that sense of like, oh, the detective sits in an armchair and thinks about everything and then puts the puzzle together versus the private Mm. investigator is dashing out into the rain and hunting down clues and interviewing a bunch of people. Well,
0: I mean, Peter dashes into all kinds of weather. Yeah. As we're going to see later in this book. That's true, but he does make poor Charles and poor Bunter do a lot of his work as well. It's true. If you think about Agatha Christie's detectives, there is quite a bit of sitting and thinking, you know, like Poirot. Miss Marple, they just kind of sit and watch and figure everything out Mm
1: -hmm, from observation. Mm
0: -hmm. I'm kind of throwing these thoughts out there, even though I really lack the expertise in American detective novels of the time period. I've read a little Dashiell Hammond, I've read a little Raymond Chandler, I've read Raymond Chandler's essay. So, like, these are all half formed thoughts that are not (laughs) necessarily backed up with very much research. Mm -hmm. But I do I do think it's interesting, especially because Clouds of Witness is much more conventional of a mystery format than, say, Whose Body Was.
1: Right. We kind of wrap back to that Victorian novel or sort of early 20th century detective novel of the locked room or the country house, right? These are very familiar settings for mm-hmm. a murder to occur.
0: Especially the country house mystery. Like if you've lived in England in the 20s... <laughs> No one could make me go to a house party. Someone's gonna drop dead. (laughs) I have too great a sense of self preservation to go to anyone's country house ever. (laughs) People drop like flies. That brings back
1: something we were talking about last time about how Whose Body really had explicitly set up the countryside as like the retreat from the city where violent things happen, right? Like Mm -hmm. no violent and sudden deaths happen in the country. And again, I wonder how much of that was sort of a joke that Sayers inserted in the final passes of Whose Body right before it was published. But clearly here violence does visit the country house, and there's a sort of sense that it's. I, I think maybe when you were saying that this is a more traditional mystery, there's also more a sense of those kind of tropes or pieces, like the set pieces of a mystery being introduced more methodically. So the book opens with an account of the inquest. And then the very next chapter, we go to Riddlesdale, and everyone who was there the night of the murder is sitting around the breakfast table and the the narrator sort of introduces them one by one, right? And it's kind of here are all the possible suspects that we know about, whereas in whose body it was just like, a body has appeared. Whose is it? We don't know. Who did (laughs) it? We don't know who are the suspects. we don't know like there's just much more ambiguity around the entire scenario whereas this feels very sort of like methodical and orderly. and we get a diagram. We get our first floor plan. <laughs>
0: That's a good diagram. Going back a little bit to the account of the inquest, mm-hmm. we talked in whose body about how interesting that inquest account was. Mm-hmm. The account of the inquest is so so useful, so useful for conveying all this information about, like here are the facts, yeah, just the facts, man. But
1: not just the facts here. There's this footnote right as Peter, I think, starts reading the newspaper. It sort mm-hmm. of slides from the newspaper account into once again we get script form, and there's a little footnote that says this report, though substantially the same as that read by Lord Peter in the Times, has been corrected, amplified, and annotated from the shorthand report made up the time by Mr. Parker. So right away, we're getting a kind of lampshading that even the script account, which you would think is about reporting dialogue objectively as it happened, when it happened, the narrative immediately points out that there's a a subjectivity or a point of view or bias from which everything is being reported.
0: Yeah, the way that different, because you get different house guests being interviewed by the coroner, right? Mm -hmm. And some of them, it doesn't do script form. It gives these kind of like quick summaries and they vary in tone really interestingly. You have really short paragraphs where Fleming, the the manservant, is being interviewed, and he's being asked like who he had taken letters to. He doesn't remember if one of them had an Egyptian stamp. He did not collect stamps; his hobby was autographs. <laughs> so he's just like, why would I have noticed? I'm not paid to notice things, <laughs> which we'll come back later. <laughs> and then the next paragraph, we're getting a little bit of Freddie Arbuthnot, who's a character that we met briefly in whose body and who's a guest at Riddlesdell. And the way that these paragraphs are gets very much. Freddie's voice, even though it's not in dialogue. Right, it
1: switches to a like free and direct discourse, kind of.
0: The way the sentence structure is. Had certainly heard loud voices, had heard somebody go for the stairs, had stuck his, you know, mm-hmm. and so it's just like quick and flippant and.
1: Yeah, like why not just render that in script form? Especially because then the very last bit of his testimony does switch back. That the feeling you get really is, I think, some of that like found document trope, I guess, of right. some outside editor is putting together all of these notes in the shorthand and the newspaper account and also sort of editorializing some of it.
0: Well, and then on the next page, you have Mr. Pettigrew Robinson. Like the bit with Freddie, it's not in script form, it's not full dialogue, but the tone is different. You get a sense of Pettigrew Robinson's personality, which is fussy (laughs) and annoying. (laughs) (laughs) and Mm self-important where Freddie's account is just like clipped where it's just like had not noticed Mm -hmm. but Mr. Pettigrew Robinson's name is used over and over like Mr. Pettigrew Robinson did this Mr. Pettigrew Robinson noticed this it's so self-important
1: yeah the narrative really makes clear kind of how much he both wants to be useful in the case and then also just Mm -hmm. kind of like what a pompous
0: ass he is because he That's thinks so he's being annoying. so useful when he's really not just want to put wet leaves down his shirt <laughs> a fate worse than death <laughs> just uh, just, uh, mm. just push him into a pond. <laughs> But speaking of kind of this found document form that we have with the inquest account, in some ways, the whole book is treated or portrayed as a found document, as you were pointing out, Sharon, when we were kind of preparing our notes. Yeah,
1: the fact that we get this subtitle, so the title is Clouds of Witness, but on the, the sort of cover page, there's a subtitle that reads, The Solution of the Riddlesdale Mystery with the Report of the Trial of the Duke of Denver Before the House of Lords for Murder. So really, yeah, the entire book book is kind of presenting itself as almost like a a report of some public event that everyone, you know, the entire reading public would have been expected to have known about or maybe read about in the paper or something. And I I think that's really interesting that there's kind of this maybe porousness between the reality of Sayers composing these books and, and kind of setting them in real time. Right, like Hmm. this book takes place. I I think it actually takes place in 1923 because Peter's 33, even though it was published later.
0: Right, but it's still set in 1923, so it's set in the same year as whose body?
1: Exactly, and sort of this idea that the same reading public that has just read whose body would be reading this book, and you know, almost as though Peter and the Duke and so forth are real people and. That now they're going to get the truthful account of like a real life occurrence. Yeah. And we also, I mean, we have this weird epigraph from the wallet of Kai Lung to open the book. And another really big change from Whose Body is that in this book, we have both chapter titles and also epigraphs for every single chapter.
0: Which is not something that Sayers did consistently because we we just checked <laughs> and some of her books have epigraphs at the chapter beginnings and some of them do not.
1: Mm-hmm. And some of them have chapter titles and no epigraphs or just no chapter titles at all. And, you know, we'd love to come up with a grand unified theory of how she was doing all that. <laughs>
0: but we can't. So maybe, maybe, maybe it'll come to us. Or maybe one of our listeners will have a suggestion. Yes,
1: there's a dissertation topic for somebody. <laughs> but I, I don't know, I've always I think for a few years now, I've been spinning out a theory of my own that the epigraph is somehow it's kind of like the perfect form to narrative or like form to thematic or form to genre thing. Um, Mm -hmm. Really eloquent there. But in the sense that the epigraph so perfectly suits the detective novel, right? Because it's almost like you're given this little clue at the beginning of the book or at the beginning of every chapter. But a lot of times you don't really know how that line fits in. It doesn't really become perfectly clear until you've actually read the chapter. So similarly to how a mystery changes once you've finished the book and reread it I feel like epigraphs kind of do that same thing where their meaning really depends on the reader already knowing what the chapter that they're about to begin is about so I don't know I mean I think it both encourages rereading and they can be red herrings they can be clues I'm sure we'll come back to this epigraph that opens the book in our second episode once we've talked about it and to wrap back and and see how well it fits
0: I mean, they also create atmosphere, right? Mm-hmm. And they also, for one thing, I think Sayers loved quotes <laughs> and the quotations, and that's a trait that she gave to Peter. Mm-hmm. And I also think that it lends intellectualism, right? which I think is something that Sayers as an academic writing mainstream fiction, I think that she deliberately interjects intellectualism and deliberately has intellectual expectations of her readers. Mm-hmm.
1: Like, I think we'll especially get into this with Gaudi Knight, but the amounts of kind of Translated foreign languages or non-English languages that run through all the books really it's on the one hand like maybe Sayers having very high expectations of a, of a certain kind of educated reader but then also I don't know for me as someone who does not speak French <laughs> I find maddening <laughs> time.
0: just like i oh, got to Google because someone's done a translation but I gotta go find mm-hmm. it
1: exactly thank goodness for Google
0: Thank goodness for other sayers readers yes. who have done the work for
1: us. Yeah, you know people were I mean, people were definitely much more widely educated in at least Latin in the England of
0: Sayers's period. The classical education was still very much a thing. Exactly.
1: She she could have done us a solid though. <laughs> Going back to the floor plan of the lodge, that strikes me also in some ways as operating similarly to the epigraph, right, where it's both a clue and a red herring. I mean, it also goes into the playing it fair to the reader's aspect of giving the readers like, okay, yeah, this is, you know, you don't really have the dialogue say whose room is next to whom's and so forth, because the reader can look at it.
0: And one thing I noticed was the diagram points out this chest at the top of the stairs, Mm -hmm. which doesn't become important until... Until you're chapter two in. Exactly. But it's already there on the diagram, so you know where it is. Mm-hmm. You know it's coming. And you
1: know that it might be important in some way. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So Karis, we've talked a bit
1: about, well, we've talked a lot about sort of that first (laughs) chapter and the inquest. Maybe let's move forward to that introductory chapter. So chapter two, where we go to Riddlesdale Lodge, and everyone's sitting around the breakfast table. A beautiful thing that I love that the narrative does here is that everyone is angry. Everyone is described as (laughs) angry, right?
0: They're so mad. Yeah.
1: So we get the Duchess of Denver. The narrative says she was never embarrassed and her anger, though never permitted to be visible, made itself felt the more. Mm
0: -hmm. This is the first time we're meeting Peter's sister-in-law, the Duchess of Denver. Yes and the description of her is so she's at the breakfast table pouring out coffee and the narrative says that this is one of her uncomfortable habits persons arriving late for breakfast were thereby made painfully aware of their sloth and
1: then the next line is she was a long-necked long-backed woman who disciplined her hair and her children
0: yes you're just like
1: oh i know exactly who she is i mean poor helen i actually really found myself feeling for her a bit more this go around like nobody in that family takes her seriously everyone treats her a bit as a joke because she's extremely unpleasant but I kind of wonder you know chicken or the egg on that one but she's really like the Maris crane of the Denver family
0: (laughs) yeah but you know the narrative kind of takes us around the table Mm -hmm. and we meet all of the other guests at the lodge and it's interesting because we have several married couples Mm -hmm. and all of the marriages are different there's the marriage between the duke and the duchess which is trained yeah it's (laughs) it is dutiful but not affectionate. Mm -hmm. It was very obviously kind of a marriage of class convenience. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's mentioned in this book, but we know from elsewhere in the books that they were cousins. I mean, I guess still are cousins, but they've conscientiously married each other because they were the right class, right family. So, I mean, that's, that's their marriage. And then you have Colonel and Mrs. Marchbanks who they have this lovely description where they had nothing beautiful about them, but a solid mutual affection. Mm. They just seem like this charming middle-aged couple. They understand one another. And they are a real contrast (laughs) to Mr. and Mrs. Pettigrew Robinson, who are not people I would want to have as neighbors. Or house guests. Or house guests. Yeah. Or relatives. <laughs> but they
1: also, I mean, it's interesting because the Pettigrew Robinsons are well suited in that they are both incredibly unpleasant and sort of busybodies.
0: Right. They're both fussy. They're both interfering. They're both like conscientiously moral. Mrs. Pettigrew Robinson is described as being not only angry but outraged mm-hmm. because she thinks that it's wrong to let your mind dwell on anything not really nice. <laughs> And so she has something that's not really nice shoved in her face because of these events. And so she's just like mad to be in this situation. Mm -hmm. And then she has her husband who is, who's angry because no one is treating him as if he's important.
1: right? And they really... I mean the narrative points out kind of how this anger spills over into what they think of the Denver family right Mm -hmm. Mrs. Pettigrew Robinson because Lady Mary had kind of spurned her help she thinks to herself she had never liked Lady Mary she considered her a very objectionable specimen of the modern independent young woman and that really kind of picks up on that hurt pride theme from whose body that when someone's pride is hurt they can react with a kind of like suppressed
0: rage right? right there's a how many marriages are we on now that is that three three? that's three marriages and then there's a fourth marriage that we aren't introduced to right away you know it's a a little bit later in the book but the farmer yes And his wife. Grime
1: Thorpe's terrible marriage, abusive and and really awful.
0: So you have just this spectrum of marriages. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, and also Lady Mary's potential marriage to Dennis Cathcart, right? So Mm -hmm. the setup of this book is that Lady Mary, Peter's sister, has engaged herself to this young man, Dennis Cathcart. And you very quickly find out that it's not really a love marriage. It's two young people who were very fed up with being told by their guardians what to do. And so they find in each other a kind of, you know, what they call a mutual understanding, right? We're going to have this marriage where we both get to do exactly what we want. There's sort of this implication we're going to probably sleep with other people, but we'll be independent. We'll have Lady Mary's money. We're going to go off and live in Europe.
0: And probably live separately. Yeah, yeah. It's a marriage of convenience in order to have have autonomy
1: and independence. Exactly. And so the scheme, of course, is interrupted by the fact that Dennis Cathcart turns up dead at 3am. And that's the murder that the Duke is accused of committing. But yeah, I think there's There's a reason that the novel points out kind of all these shapes and forms that a marriage can take. And I think it really, again, harkens back to sort of the Victorian marriage plot novel, right? Where from even the Regency period, starting from Sir Walter Scott and Jane Austen, the novel of the 19th century is really concerned with the question of what makes a good marriage. And Mm. often that's sort of a metaphor for the union of these three countries that make up Great Britain. And that's kind of why you see the marriage plot novel falling apart as the century goes on. Mm. You move from Jane Austen and sort of these lovely happy marriages to people in George Eliot and Henry James marrying the wrong person. I feel like there's a very similar thing going on in this book about the novel sort of presenting a bunch of unhappy marriages and sort of giving Lady Mary maybe a second chance to think about what she's going to want in a union and certainly becomes a live question for people. Peter later on in the series. What kind of person is he going to marry?
0: And what
1: will that mean for him? Yeah.
0: We see marriages with uh, power imbalances. Yes. Or even just not just marriages, but as we'll see when we get a little bit farther, just relationships with power imbalances. Obviously, the Grimethorps is a marriage with a huge power imbalance with just really unfortunate consequences Mm -hmm. for the woman. Mm -hmm. With the Duke and Duchess, there's an emotional power imbalance because you get the impression that Helen is the one controlling the household and Gerald is not portrayed as having a deep emotional life of his own. Right. But also he holds a different kind of power.
1: It's not like Helen can leave him. She'd lose her children. She'd lose her livelihood. So it's kind of like the best that they can do is you know spend some time apart he goes off hunting and she stays at Denver and
0: right yeah. which I don't think the narrative suggests at all that either of them have an inclination to dissolve their marriage but I think to them this is what they think marriage is right. as far as they're concerned they have a perfectly normal marriage mm-hmm. despite the fact that it includes peccadillos on the part of the male half mm-hmm. yeah but I imagine not at all on the female half exactly because of course not but then you have the marsh bank Who, you know, at one point in the book, the narrative is just reminding us where everyone is. Mm -hmm. And you get one of my favorite lines in the book, which is that Mrs. Pettigrew Robinson had taken her husband for a brisk walk. (laughs) Because, so I'm, I'm like, that's how that relationship is, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. But it says that the Marshbanks were somewhere upstairs experiencing a perfect union of minds or something like that. And that's the marriage in this book that is obviously loving and functional and affectionate. And it just goes to show that Sayers in this book, and I think in all of her future books, is really showing that a good marriage... Is one with equality mm-hmm. right equality of power equality of intellect equality of respect and not to spoil things that will happen in future mm-hmm. books but we are going to see how if there is something that creates unequal power then then maybe do something to equalize things and that that's what leads to marital happiness mm-hmm. so
1: that's a very good preview that doesn't give anything away
0: Karis. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well done well done
0: thank you I try
1: <laughs> have we said what we wanted about marriage before I take us back somewhere else?
0: I think so. I think those were all the moles that I wanted to whack. Mm.
1: To go back to the breakfast table scene, there is one final character who shows up at the very end of that pan around the table and it's someone we've met before but
0: oh, oh yeah we haven't talked about it no <laughs> just been maundering on about all these other people yeah.
1: but the narrative comes to rest on the presence of the detective a quiet young man in a tweed suit eating curry at one end of the table next to Mr. Murbles the solicitor side note I love Mr. merbles's name and I also love Sir Impey Biggs the lawyer that shows up later anyway just sayers at her like most dickensian naming i think
0: if you ever get like a little a little dog (gasps) with like a a squashed in face and you don't name him mr murbles i will be sad you
1: can disown me forever because that is perfect okay now that we've chased that rabbit hole But, okay, so the detective is described as a quiet young man in a tweed suit, and it is not until one, two, three pages later that we find out that that is, in fact, Mr. Charles Parker, our dear friend from last time. Dear Charles. Yeah, and there's this really funny way in which the narrative points out, Mrs. Pettigrew Robinson says something uh, very sort of ungracious about detectives, and... Parker sort of suddenly speaks up about, you know, detectives have an ungrateful task. And the narrative says he had said nothing for a long time and everybody jumped. And I love that because it's really the dialogue and the scene and the action is mirroring the thing that the narrative itself did right, which is sort of like pan over, Mm -hmm. mention a young man, you don't find out until a little bit later that it's Parker. And then everybody, including the narrator forgets about him for a little bit. And then he pops back in sort of making this like dry comment that embarrasses those who have ignored him. But it really to me, it really parallels how the narrative I think not just in this book, but in other books, kind of always treats the Mm servant. So often in Sayers, you don't realize a servant is in the room until partway through a scene where somebody's like later on Peter has written a few letters and then he says here you go Fleming and you're like oh go Fleming you were here." yeah Fleming was here and and you know this only works in book form right if it's a movie then you just see the servants in the background all the time but Mm -hmm. I I kind of love how Sayers sort of plays with that and
0: because that is just like a fundamental element of I feel like the Victorian novel, where there's just this assumption that servants are around and you don't have to mention them. Mm -hmm. And that bleeds into the 20s and 30s. If you're in a certain type of setting, you can assume servants are around, even if they aren't mentioned. Right. And I think Sayers very deliberately plays on that assumption. And then, surprise! They were
1: here this whole time! Yeah. And it'll certainly come to bear later on in this book, but also in a couple future books where, kind of once again, right, like what we were saying last time, This idea that servants are the people who are always around and and know your most private self and have access to your most private self. But also they have that access because everyone that they serve is kind of trained to ignore them or treat them like pieces of furniture or like people who don't have interiority or like kind of a life of their Mm -hmm. own. And I think it's really interesting that this trope really starts to gather steam in this book, because the socialists that Mary falls in with are sort of caricatures of socialists, but this whole idea of who is the worker and who's doing the labor. And we get this great scene where Bunter's talking to one of the housemaids, and you really get her perspective on the family. And it's not very flattering. You know, there's a lot of like class resentment, and I think rightful complaining about how careless these people are about like the feelings of the workers who are making their lives possible
0: one well, specifically lady mary who is being a very traumatic and <laughs> difficult person which i mean on the one hand okay like your fiance just died you're entitled to a little bit of a fuss but on the other hand
1: right like your brother is in jail standing trial for murder and you take to your room and refuse to talk to anybody and refuse to give the evidence that might exonerate him. And the scene where Bunter is talking to her maid Ellen, Ellen says, it's very nice to be a ladyship and all your tempers <laughs> coddled and called nervous prostration. <laughs> I know I was dreadfully cut up about poor Bert, my young man who was killed in the war. Nearly cried my eyes out, I did. But law, Mr. Bunter, I'd be ashamed to go on. So, like, mm. oh, what a terrible experience she's had. And here's Mary.
0: When, like, Just that implication that well-to-do people are allowed to be deeply emotional
1: mm, and nobody else's it's also I think it's picking up on I think Lady Mary is really really modeled after Rachel Verinder from The Moonstone mm,
0: which I haven't read
1: what
0: <laughs> I haven't read it How? I've read The Woman in White but I haven't It's on my my to read. Okay,
1: so I guess I should explain a little bit what I mean by that (laughs) to you and to our readers or listeners. So The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins was a kind of late Victorian mystery novel told all in letters. So again, that kind of like found document set trope. And in it, there's no murder, but the title object the moonstone is this sort of precious gem that gets bequeathed to a young English woman on her 18th birthday and then that night it disappears and there's a really sort of horrible orientalist subplot that goes along with like why it's a cursed object and these people from the the mysterious east who are coming to get it back which I'm not going to get into because again <laughs> like not a podcast about deconstructing <laughs> a terrible racist tropes. For our
0: next podcast. For our next
1: podcast. (laughs) But in the book, the young woman uh, who owns the Moonstone, her name is Rachel Verinder, and she does this thing too where she takes to her room and refuses to speak to anybody about what she saw that night or what she didn't see, refuses to talk to the police, goes into hysterics, and later on, not to spoil it, but it comes out in the open that she did this because she thought that the man she was engaged to, whom she loved, stole the Moonstone stone so instead of this like misguided attempt to protect him even though she breaks off the engagement but yeah it's because she she thinks that she's protecting his reputation so yeah i just think given how much sayers is reaching into that country house mystery and the fact that she respected wilkie collins as a mystery writer so much i really feel like she's picking up on that with Mary, but also really deliberately showing kind of how irresponsible that, that stance is and how how much it not only inconveniences the investigation, but is, you know, I, I think going back to that conversation we had about Charles and Peter discussing doing the right thing, no matter what it would cost emotionally. Mary in this book at first is too immature to do that
0: right well the call out that Peter gets from Parker. Parker reminds him that he's not in a story. He's not, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not about his attitude, that what's important isn't how he's presented. Right. And I really feel like we learn a bit about Mary's past in the course of the investigation because Peter has to learn about his own sister because they weren't Mm -hmm. close. Well,
1: neither close in age nor...
0: Yeah, they're not close in age. And then he went off to the war and then he was recovering from shell shock. And so I think he says, between one thing and another, I know very little about mm-hmm. my own sister. So as we learn about Mary, we learn that she has really been trying on different hats.
1: Mm-hmm. Different personas.
0: Yeah, and like, that's very much, you know, a young adult thing to do. And my impression of Mary is that like her brother, Peter, she's an emotional, creative person. And what that has meant for her is that she's been trying on different personas and seeing herself as a figure in a narrative. Right.
1: Like Peter says later on, he's like, she's been reading too many sensation novels. He very deliberately calls out the narrative that she's trying to place herself within.
0: There's just this long list of things that she's been in. It's like narrative where she was a heroic nurse. There's a narrative where she's a brave socialist. There's a narrative where she's a, a very modern woman who's entering this marriage of convenience. A very continental relationship. Mm-hmm.
1: And we'll find out later on that there's also a narrative in which she is a romantic heroine and elopes.
0: Right. And we get to the midpoint of the book and she comes to London to see Peter and ends up seeing Parker instead. And she is very conscientiously the brave, sacrificial mm-hmm. martyr for someone that she cares right. about.
1: And Parker hilariously sees through it right away. I mean, I don't think it's giving away too much to say that she, in that halfway point, she comes to him and says, I shot Dennis Cathcart myself. You have to let Gerald go. And Parker is immediately like, no, of course you didn't. Don't be ridiculous.
0: But I also, you know, like that chapter, which is, that's chapter seven. Um, Eight. Chapter seven, chapter seven Mm -hmm. and eight. I also, I love the fact that I think it's safe to say now that Parker and Mary, we ship it. Oh,
1: so much. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Shifted so much
1: so does the book i mean
0: <laughs> yeah oh yeah but you know like parker is hearing her make this absolutely ludicrous mm-hmm. confession and poor parker is just head over heels oh for he her. loves her already he loves her so and like he admires her like he thinks that she's being really brave
1: and gallant i mean listen to how this is from his point of view how the narrative describes the way that she shows up at the door the door opened exactly as in the beginning of a sherlock Holmes story to admit a tall and beautiful young woman in an extreme state of nervous agitation with a halo of golden hair violet blue eyes and disordered apparel all complete for as she threw back her heavy traveling coat he observed that she wore evening dress with light green silk stockings and heavy broke shoes thickly covered with mud like it's this wonderful thing where she comes in as this beautiful damsel in distress um, and I love that the narrative sort of like takes the air out of the balloon a little bit by like and her feet were you know in thick boots covered with lots of mud but like that's how he sees her it's really lovely
0: it is it's so nice it's like, get you someone who looks at you the way Parker looks at Lady Mary. Mm, truly. But then I also, like, isn't there, I'm flipping through, because I should have written down the page number, but I didn't, because I'm bad at taking notes, but isn't there a part where Mary kind of very deliberately starts crying, and Bunter swoops in with smelling salts? Yes, salt. yes. <laughs> really, really interferes with her dramatic moment. He puts
1: it under her nose, and she goes, how dare you, Bunter, go away at once? <laughs> Hunter is the best he just has no time for hysterics other than peter's i guess lots of time for peter's hysterics but he's like gosh darn it i can't take care of all the whimsies
0: right which in parker's defense he's not so blinded by lady mary that he thinks that her the hysterics that she goes into are are genuine grief or yeah exactly because he does point out to himself like if it is crying it sounds like hiccups (laughs) and and he calls in bunter so where were we before we went off into our rapture? <laughs> we were talking about how Mary creates this narrative around mm-hmm. herself. And that's, it's just kind of showing that, you know, she's younger than Peter. She's less mm-hmm. mature and she hasn't had, you know, she's been surrounded by other people who are creating narratives around themselves. Right. She hasn't had a level headed friend like Parker to be like, you know, get it together. Yeah. Get it together. Your ego is not what's mm-hmm. most important. Well, and, in- I think there's also
1: maybe something to be said here about just the different avenues of expression that are available to men and women. Yeah, that's very true. In this time, because like, yeah, Mary and Peter come from the same family. In some ways, their position is closer even than Peter's and the Dukes, right? Because neither of them are going to inherit. But they have this wealth. They have this privilege. Neither of them are ever going to be expected to work. And so it's like, what do you do with yourself if you're artistic and temperamental and you want to leave an impression on the world? Well, Peter gets to go and detect and have sort of this public life. Right. And
0: well, and Peter has control of his own fortune because he's a man, whereas Mary has absolutely nothing unless... Her oldest brother gives it to her. Mm -hmm.
1: And he's not going to until she gets married. And in which case it goes to her husband.
0: Right. And it has to be a husband he approves of. Exactly. Yeah. Which is why she was going to marry Catherine.
1: Right. Which is really awful.
0: You know, like if she had succeeded in eloping with her Bolshevik, With Mr. Goyles. With Mr. Goyles, the unfortunately (laughs) named (laughs) Goyles. so bad. So terrible. But, you know, like if she had married him, she wasn't going to get, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Gerald would have had the power to Mm -hmm. withhold her inheritance. Which kudos to Lady Mary that she was prepared to go through with that, even though she very clearly didn't fully understand
1: what that might mean. Right. And I think the book does, the narrator is very sympathetic to her in that regard, right? Of Mm -hmm. She really would have been backed into a corner either way. It was the choice was marry a man you don't love and have some amount of independence and be given the wealth that your brothers just get to have, or... Marry someone you do love or that you think you love and have nothing. And even, even though I think the narrative sort of pokes fun at Mary and her friends, you know, her sort of aristocratic set for like play acting socialism. Yeah.
0: Like what, what did you, yeah. What did you call them? Uh,
1: Champagne socialists.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Champagne socialists. I love it.
1: I've known so many. (laughs) Um, Um but, you know, like there is this aspect of she doesn't quite understand what that would truly mean, right? Her friend, Miss mm-hmm. Tarrant, is like, oh, yes, once we, you know, the group of us like went down and rented a farm and we tried to live on like a few shillings a week. And it was great, great larks because they only did it for two weeks.
0: Yeah. yeah. Just like, oh, it was such hard work, but we loved it. Yeah. We loved working and hard for, for two weeks. Exactly. And
1: like, you know, there's a, the ungracious part of me is like, mm, I wonder how many servants they took with them, right? Like, yeah, how many servants that just got alighted out of that narrative as well, which is funny because Sayers herself was quite critical of late stage capitalism and kind of what she saw around her in terms of mass market consumerism. And so I don't think that she herself was entirely, I don't think she's writing this book going, oh, I'm going to show up you know, those those damn socialists or anything. But I think she is pointing out a kind of way in which Mary engages in this particular pose, because it is an attempt to be more free than her particular social class or her upbringing or her family situation was setting her up for, right? Like something that really strikes me is that in the socialist club that Peter goes to when he's looking for Goyles, he overhears people talking about D.H. Lawrence and Dada and Joyce. And it's like, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like this is one of the few moments in the series where Sayers has characters at all refer to art and literature of that present moment sort of those experimental modernists so it's interesting to me that it's the the socialists who are really kind of in the know about what's going on in in the artistic world around them yeah
0: like in strong poison we get a bit of a caricature of those artists Mm -hmm. peter is taken to a couple of salons where he oh that's right yeah he meets some very dramatic and interesting people but those aren't really references i don't believe to any like actual living artists. Those are caricatures of, I think, people in the London art scene that Sayers would have encountered. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think this is really one of the few references to the actual modernists.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. And just a side note, Ulysses was serialized in the years preceding, but the actual novel in its entirety was published in 1922. I think it's interesting to see Mr. Joyce just sort of offhandedly mentioned in here.
0: So what have we not quite covered? You know, we haven't really talked very much about, like, the actual investigation. We haven't really talked about – we haven't talked about Peter
1: very much. Oh, let's. Yes, we should. I noticed because we had talked about the extremely appealing and flattering comparison of Peter to maggots in cheese. (laughs) (laughs) In the last book, I don't know that he gets much better showing in Clouds of Witness. There's this description of him uh, when he and Charles are looking at the scene of the crime. um, And we can discuss that a bit more in a bit. But it says, Lord Peter gazed down sadly, muffled in an overcoat and a thick gray scarf. He looked with his long, narrow face like a melancholy adjutant stork, (laughs) which... I just love, I mean, yeah. you know, once again, I, I it's, okay, it is better than the cheese and the magnet, Right. But I, I think the, the picture of him as a melancholy stork is really so evocative and gives you such a sense of the whole atmosphere and how he's feeling in this particular scenario. Mm-hmm. And I don't, do you feel like he's less of that silly ass in this book? I mean, he still pulls on the persona a lot.
0: Right. He's still still, you know, he's throwing out quotations, he's making silly comments. In this bit where he, Parker is showing him, you know, kind of the bloodstains and the footprints, etc. that are in the grounds of the lodge. And Peter is being very, he's just enjoying himself perhaps a little too much.
1: But he does say later, like, I think to Parker, don't don't think that this is easy for
0: me. Right. I think something that is established in whose body but maybe not said explicitly is that the silly ass persona is a way of emotionally distancing himself mm-hmm. and right. whose body was in many ways like very emotionally intense for mm-hmm. peter and he's gone away for this i think he was gone for what three months in corsica having this yes. intense Restful time. And he immediately comes back to this mystery. Mm -hmm. And we don't see him having an emotional break in the course of this book. Sayers really kind of steps back from engaging with that, I think. But that doesn't mean that Peter lacks depth as a character. It just means that it's more subtle. Right. I
1: wonder if part of that is that he is aware, because he is defending his brother, that he has to keep
0: a sterner check
1: on those emotions.
0: I think that's something that we will probably pick up that thread again in the next episode, because we're going to dig more into... Some of the things that happened to Peter in the second half of the book in the course of his investigation Mm -hmm. and some of the interesting conversations that he has with his sister about the things that the things that are going on and what they mean.
1: Yeah. I feel like in the first half he and Parker almost share the narrative and then as we move to the back end of the novel we get much more Peter.
0: Something that occurred to me as I was reading this obviously I've read Clouds of Witness innumerable times but something that occurred to me for the first time on this reread was that this is the closest we get to seeing what a novel with Parker as the protagonist would look like because we get Mm. so much of his perspective.
1: Yeah, more so than Whose Body and and I think than any of the later books. Yeah, you're definitely right on that.
0: There's many places where Peter is off doing something else and where Parker is the one carrying the narrative. And so I asked myself what would that look like? A book that was about Parker without Peter in it. Maybe. Oh, well, I have a theory. Please share. (laughs) I think the closest example that I can think of is Niall Marsh's Inspector Allen.
1: I have not read any Niall Marsh. <laughs> now okay. I have to confess.
0: <laughs> so your assignment <laughs> is to read a couple of Niomarsh Marsh and tell me if you think that Inspector Allen reminds you of Parker. Okay. Now that I've like preloaded you with a bias <laughs> and I'll read the Moonstone. <laughs> Okay. Excellent.
1: <laughs> I like how this fun little project of ours is just like all of a sudden we have reading lists. And...
0: <laughs> we'll do a podcast. It'll be fun. It will be low effort. Just yeah, a fun little just, hobby.
1: Just something we squeeze in in the margins of our time. You know, no problem. <laughs> now you have homework. <laughs> oh, but dear listeners, Cars and I were both nerds and adored homework.
0: So uh... Why was that in the past tense? <laughs> I'm very excited to write my 50-page essay. <laughs> On the moonstone. Okay, go ahead.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, bring it back. Um, (laughs) I mean, and I think this actually wraps back nicely to our observations that Clouds of Witness much more resembles a Victorian mystery, right? Because if it is a mystery in which Mr. Parker is the protagonist, then of course it would look very much like a Victorian novel. Parker, that dear Victorian that Peter wants to put (laughs) under glass, right? (laughs) And we'll, I think we'll talk more next time about also how much this book owes to The Hound of the Baskervilles.
0: Of course, we have not gotten to the Moors yet. No. And we haven't gotten to, yeah, well, (laughs) maybe. Maybe I shouldn't throw that out there. We haven't gotten to the part that's going to make me want to break into song. Oh. I mean, I probably won't, out of respect for our listeners.
1: Or you could.
0: (laughs) Or maybe I won't. But there is a song that's the lyrics are quoted in the book, and it was just one of the things where I'm just like, I don't know what this song is, so I looked it up, and it has many verses, and I learned them all. (laughs)
1: Our next episode is just you singing all the verses.
0: <laughs> yeah, just half an hour of me singing all the verses of Oak Lamor Batas, which is a song about why you should not go on the moor without a hat. That's it, that's the song. Good warning. Spoiler, the reason is because you'll die. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Peter should have paid more attention to that
0: he song. Really should have. Really should yeah, have. Truly. He's very soft city boy who forgot <laughs> about mm-hmm. weather.
1: That the Moors just always want to kill you.
0: Whether or not they have giant hounds in them.
1: Right. But that's like the Chekhov's gun of Victorian country house mysteries, right? If there is a moor in Act One, in Act yeah. Three it will try to kill you.
0: Uh it- yeah, that's true.
1: <laughs> Sorry, listeners. A little slightly slight spoilers or just a little little preview for yeah.
0: for next time. Just a teaser. Just a little. Te-
1: yeah. Um. Is there anything else we wanted to say about the mystery itself? I feel like we never quite get there. <laughs> you just go rambling off in in other directions?
0: I think obviously we are making the assumption that the majority of our listeners have probably read the book. Mm -hmm. For those who may not have, we haven't spoiled anything for the second half of the book. Mm -hmm. But the mechanics of the mystery... You and I were talking before we hit record. We were talking about how in some ways this is a much more mainstream, much more classic mystery setup than what we have in Whose Body. And narratively it might seem less complex or less experimental than Whose Body is. But it's also really airtight as a mystery. The clues are really airtight. It's still very self-consciously... How many times have I said self-consciously in the course of this recording? A shrinking game for our listeners. I feel like I've said it a bunch. But it's self-consciously complex Mm -hmm. without being... Tortured? Yeah. And without being an incredibly complex and improbable mystery the way that Whose Body kind of is. Mm -hmm. Like, Whose Body is only plausible because it's a revenge fantasy. Because otherwise, that's a very stupid way to murder (laughs) someone. Um, whereas clouds of witness, you know, and that's kind of what the title references, I think, right? It's a biblical reference to the book of Hebrews, right? A great cloud of witnesses, but kind of like all the quotes at the beginning of the chapters, it's taken out of context and used to mean something slightly different from what it means in its original context. Mm-hmm. The cloud of witness that we have in this book is too many people with too much evidence and Mm -hmm. too many clues that
1: contradict each other, occluding the truth.
0: Yes. Such a good word. Such a good $5 word there. (laughs) You get a bonus point on your homework for vocabulary. Thank you. Thank you. Gold star.
1: Oh, I feel like I'm back in Latin class. (laughs) But I think it works both ways, though. I think the reference or the context still does make sense, because if I'm not mistaken, the original biblical reference, if I'm not mistaken, the writer of Hebrews, when talking about this great cloud of witness, is describing a kind of lineage of faith or belief, kind of stretching from Adam all the way to Jesus, and name checks these sort of biblical greats when it comes to the begats, And I think... I don't know, given everything we've been saying about how much this novel is also self consciously and very deliberately picking up tropes of Victorian country house mysteries, and Sayers is sort of name checking Wilkie Collins and name checking Arthur Conan Doyle and so forth, you know, I kind of see the name also sort of a wink and a nod towards Sayers sort of saying, like, Peter Whimsey is going to take his place in the line of great detectives from Depenn through Sherlock Holmes, etc up to now so so sort of locating the book and her project within this this much larger literary canon so yeah oh. It works on multiple levels, which pleases me. Or at least I'm going to make it work on multiple levels. So, (laughs) Yeah. And that is literary criticism. (laughs) Make it work.
0: I mean, I also find it 100% reasonable to think that Sayers intended it to work on all those levels. Because Mm -hmm. Sayers with her her ties to academia and Sayers with her interest in theology and biblical commentary. And like, I find it hard to believe that none of that is bobbing around in her mind. Mm
1: -hmm. It's also just a really good title.
0: I mean, it is. It's a good, solid title. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me. Join us again in two weeks for our second episode on Clouds of Witness, where we're going to discuss the solution of the case.
1: And also why you should never go walking on the moors.
0: Don't go walking on the (laughs) moors. Just never. Don't do it. Don't
1: do it. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as @whimsypod. That's whimsy spelled W-I-M-S-E-Y. Our website, where you can find transcripts for each episode, as well as links to any resources we mentioned on today's podcast, is asmywhimsytakesme.com.
0: Our logo is by Gabby Vicioso, and our theme music was composed and recorded by Sarah Mahalik. If you've enjoyed this episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me, we'd be really grateful if you would give us a rating and leave us a review on iTunes or on your podcaster of choice. We also hope that you'll tell all of your friends who love Dorothy L. as much as we do.
1: See you next time for more Talking Piffle.